Hey, this is Shannon K, and you're listening to Get Real. Hey, everyone, this is Shannon K, and welcome to Get Real. Our guest today has a 15 years of career in media and entertainment. She's a producer, editor, reporter, filmmaker. She's really channeled all the work of fields. Not only that, she happens to be the daughter of an Indian politician, Mr. Subramaniam Jayashankar. Please welcome Mera Jayashankar. Thank you. This is the first time I think in a professional setting that I've been introduced as the daughter of so-and-so. Um, I'm still getting used to that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Is it different because nobody knows like your, your father or is it like, you know, they don't want to, they usually don't kind of like introduce you like that? <laughs> well, to be honest, first of all, my father is probably one of the funniest people I've ever known. He's up there with my top comedians. Um, that should be his backup career if his, uh, if his foreign service one doesn't work out. Uh, and I think growing up, um, he had a very traditional nine to five job. Mm-hmm. Um, and we traveled around the world. I was born in Delhi and then we moved to DC and Sri Lanka, um, Hungary, back to India, Japan, and Czech Republic. And quite frankly, he was that dad who just went to an office, came back. He was very involved in my school activities as a child. Uh, My mother passed away when I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And so then he became more involved in our life. And, you know, he was very much there, like helping us with our SAT prep and and other things too. Uh, As my grandmother says, my mom's mom, she says he was both your mother and your father hmm. at that point of time. Yeah. And then obviously as a teenager, I was quite a ratty teenager. So <laughs> we had lots of fights as usual, as most parents and, and uh, children and, and parents do at that age. But in my 20s and my third, uh, in my 20s, we developed such a close relationship and very much so in my 30s. And quite frankly, his career really took off in my late 20s um, and now into my 30s. So I think in my head, he's still the dad who, you know, showed up at tennis practice or supported me, encouraged me to get into the film industry, Hmm. Uh, you know, and, you know, unlike very many Indian parents who, you know, you always hear the story of like, oh, my parents didn't want me to get into film, blah, blah, blah. He was the total opposite, uh, as were many of my other extended family members. They're very, very encouraging of the field that I've chosen to work in. Um, so now that he has become uh, the equivalent of the Secretary of State, uh, it boggles my mind. Um, but uh, that he's become this well-known person. Uh, But uh, in America, I get to hide out here and um, (laughs) uh, I don't have to see him on the news every day, which happens when I'm in India in an airport or something like that. But um, I, I love our relationship now and I hope to emulate it for the 
I wouldn't say my future children, I'd say the younger generations who I interact with. Mm -hmm. um, I looked at an old, I was during COVID, I was looking at old family videos and trying to archive them. And I saw in his thirties, when we were children, he was talking to us like we were adults. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope I get to treat the younger generations like that and respect their opinion and learn from them too. So yeah, sorry, I just sort of digressed into my, uh, whole papa love <laughs> no, absolutely. I can tangent know, right there I can definitely relate to that so you know it, it feels very nice to have that sort of connection with your dad especially you know since he's like you know he's always busy and he's such a big name and everything but yet he still does like the fatherly things and everything with you so he never you know made you realize that um he's treating you different or or like you missed your childhood with him you know because I feel like sometimes that does happen um, when you're one of your parents or both of your parents are, uh, you know, in, in, in the industry of um, whether it's entertainment or even politics and everything. So it's great that he made time out of, uh, you know, his, uh, his job as well. And still does. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, how did you start in the entertainment business? Like, you know, despite being um, a daughter of a politician like didn't you think oh, he wasn't a politician back then but yeah well um you like think about to like you know do something that your dad is trying to do or you know was it like entertainment all um growing up uh we had a video camera at home and um one of our pastimes as a family was to take the footage of what we shot and edit it mm -hmm. and so We'd have our video camera and um, these wires for the audio in retrospect. I'm like, oh, we should have done this and that now that I'm more knowledgeable about production. <laughs> so my brother and I would have to hold these wires so that we could add, you know, like the pop music that we were throwing on to our holiday in uh, Gyor or Austria or someplace like that, or even in India and in Himachal Pradesh and various other places we went to. And that became our favorite pastime. Um, and watching films uh, in Japan, the summers are actually extremely hot. So I would stay inside as a teenager and just watch movies back to back to back. Watch like four or five movies at a go um, on, in, on a day. And uh, so that's when I start, it started to click in my head saying, it would be awesome. It seems impossible for me to like, America seems so far away, you know, LA or like, I don't know what this place is, but um, <laughs> I loved production. I loved editing. And I had a high school teacher who was extremely influential in my life, who's still a very dear friend. Uh, and she was the one who really encouraged me to go pursue this. So when I uh, applied for colleges in America, I had to apply for financial aid or a scholarship. You know, I couldn't afford to go on a full tuition um set up and so i sort of narrowed down to the colleges i could go to that offered financial aid that offered film programs and on top of that i'll just admit i wasn't the most brilliant student in the world so it wasn't like i could contemplate <laughs> applying to an ivy league college <laughs> or shooting for the stars on that front and it's funny because a lot of ivy league colleges don't offer film production as a major um, but I managed to get into this great university called Denison. Uh, and when I was at Denison, it's in, it's in Ohio. I actually made a lot of Indian friends. 
and that was my first time meeting people from Bombay. Mm. Um, you know, because I grew up in Delhi and not in Bombay. So I met people from Bombay, I met people from Ohio, I met people from various places in the country. And once again, they're still my dear friends to date. I'm actually writing a TV show with two of my classmates from Denison. And uh, it allowed me to get that one year work permit after college to move to New York and become a grip gaffer. Uh, so as we say in India, I was the Bijli Valley. I was the one, I was the electrical person, you know, setting up the wires, putting the equipment, pushing dollies. Um, and it was a great time. Uh, I would say my first professional break in life happened a year in, uh, uh, almost towards the end of my work permit. You know, I was like, oh, how do I stay in this country? I love it. I love doing shoots. And I was interning for a well-known uh, Indian director named Mira Nair, who I worshipped as a child. I, I somehow managed to get an internship at her office by cold emailing her office or something. And one day they sent me to deliver a package. So I go off to deliver this package and it's in this weird basement. And went and I was like, oh, where am I going off to? I give the package to this guy. And suddenly I hear this British accent behind me and someone says, oh, do you know how to transcribe by any chance? I said, what is transcribe? I don't know. I turn around and the guy behind me is someone who I watched as a child in all these countries that I was mentioning. Growing up, he had a BBC film review show called Talking Movies that even if I was on holiday, I would you know, tell everyone to stop. I need to watch the show. And he was the host of the show. And I was like, you're Tom Brook. So excited. He was like, yeah, yeah, do you know how to transcribe? And I was like, I don't know what, I, yes. I just said, yes, I didn't know what transcribe meant, which I later realized what he meant by that, which was listen to an interview and write it down. And so he hired me right there and then sponsored my visa. And I ended up working for him for two and a half years. And uh, it was such a great experience. I got to meet all these filmmakers I grew up watching. I went to film festivals, I went to Sundance, Toronto Film Festival. Um, and it really gave me a lot of insight into the film industry uh, at large. Uh, it was almost like film school part two. Um, I later moved back to India to work in the film industry, but Tom was really the person who gave me my first, like, here you are, you're officially in the industry. And uh, 15 years later, I am actually meeting him tonight uh, in LA after he covers the Oscars, uh, since he's in town for that. So yeah, that, that was how I got into the film industry. That is amazing. That's such a great story. And I, <laughs> you know, I was just like listening to it and I was just kind of imagining how amazing you would have like you, you felt. And I, I also, I was about to say that, you know, you had interviewed so, many amazing you know great uh filmmakers during your time at the bbc um you know film review show you had the opportunity to interview uh quentin tarantino uh Char i didn't interview him but i filmed him well i mean yeah. that's like then, amazing <laughs> you know so how that was, was an interesting experience yeah yeah like how was that all you know experience like learning from from the greatest and, and being in that environment You know, interviewing, hearing interview after interview with the Spike Lees and the, I'm trying to think, every week we were meeting someone, Mike Figgis. Um, I, 
in retrospect, it's made me realize that if I put my mind to it, I could do it to it. It's, I mean, it's been 13 years and I'm starting to get there now, but <laughs> um, I think one of the most, in, the, the interview that was the most influential for me at the time was interviewing Steven Soderbergh. Mm -hmm. And Steven Soderbergh just really talked about the practicalities of filmmaking. He had just done Shea at the time. So we met him in Toronto and later in New York. And um, I think it was sort of applying all the things I learned in college you know, how to literally film something, shoot on 60 millimeter, cut on a steam back editing thing to distribution and, and, and how to get it from place A to place Z. So it didn't necessarily have an immediate effect, but right now in my career, looking back and hearing those interviews, I have now got a much broader understanding of taking an idea from someone's head and executing it and getting it out there in the world in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was my biggest takeaway from that era of time. Uh, plus just getting in the habit of doing production really fast, mm -hmm. you know, carrying my camera, putting the mic on someone, taping it fast, just getting there, getting the lighting, blah, blah, blah. As you saw, I was like very particular about my setup today. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's all from my training with Tom back then. Mm -hmm. That's great. And do you would you say that, you know, um, the whole kind of phase of you traveling and working and learning has reflected um, your understanding and work like you just had mentioned right now and even your personality because like, you know, you've you've sort of traveled like around the globe. So you you have a perspective, you have like, you're knowledgeable enough to understand about like their culture and their way of working compared to like how maybe production is worked over here, you know, out here in the States. So do you see any like differences or are they all like similar with each other? I think my learnings of late, especially in the last year, is that I have a perspective, but there are many perspectives. So when I approach something, I know it's not the only way to approach something mm -hmm. and that I should be amenable and listen to other people's approaches to various things. Uh, right now, for instance, I'm setting up a horror film, horror feature film in India. And we do, we approach a project in a certain way in the States, which is go to an agent, pitch it to a studio, get financing, this X, Y, Z, and communications a certain way. And in India, it's a very different way. We communicate via WhatsApp more than email, phone calls more than in written form. And um, it's funny because my filmmakers are, my director is Indian, mm. but this is a new form of communication even for him. Mm -hmm. And we have these discussions often where we're like, we just have to accept that this is how they communicate and that's their perspective on how to approach this project. This is our perspective and let's find a middle ground. So I hope that answers your question. I, I think with age, I've realized that it's not my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's just, I feel like with traveling and, and knowing the culture and different ways of working it does really um, expand your um, way of thinking and you know it just makes you feel like you don't get stuck um, sometimes you know you feel like this is the only way but for you as you said that there are like different ways of looking at the same thing and trying out different um, 
you know, options and ways. So that's really, really creative in the sense. And, you know, you've worked in like- so Here, sorry, I'm just gonna interrupt there for a second. I think the difference between a person like myself who's traveled a bit and people, there are people who've traveled way more than me. Uh, and someone who, like my friends who had lived in Ohio had never left Ohio, right? Mm -hmm. The people I met in, and I wasn't even in a city in Ohio. I was really far away, like a drive, like a long drive from a major city there. I met some of the most talented, amazing artists, some of the most intelligent people in my life over mm -hmm. there. And they were so talented that I was like, oh man, if they were in LA, they would be like the big, they would be the next Banksy or they would be the next something or the other. I think the difference between the travel and the, and the people who didn't have the luxury of travel like myself is that maybe they didn't have the network mm -hmm. to, to achieve those dreams of becoming a full-time artist. They were the artist, but they were the bartender. Mm. or they were, the, they were doing this and that. And that's changing now with technology. I, I have people, friends in Chicago, I mean, Chicago is a major city, but they do some very unique like art, artistic work where you're like, oh, that's a profession and you can do that as a profession yeah. uh, in the music industry and stuff. So yes, travel has affected who I am. I'm also an extreme, an extreme extrovert. And so um, it helps that I've built this network and whatnot, but uh, I don't, I don't think that it's black and white in terms of the fact that travel equals you'll have more, you know, a bigger brain or anything like that. Um, I think there are benefits to travel, but it's not the only thing that can allow for uh, growth and expansion. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get Sorry, it. I had to interrupt to 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 bring that point about. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think you know. Of course. I mean, you know the best. So. Yeah, <laughs> or I don't, <laughs> as I said, <laughs> it's not, my perspective is not necessarily the perspective. <laughs> no, I absolutely get it. I mean, nobody knows, you know, all of it and everything. So it's good to always, you know, say, I don't know. I feel like in this day and age, everybody expects you to know everything because you have a certain um, period of, you know, career and you've done so many things. So they have a lot of expectations from you as to like, you know, um, you should know the answer to this or you should know the answer to that. But in, in reality, you don't because this would probably be your first time, you know, hearing it or understanding it, you know, and experiencing it. So I, I really love the fact that you, you know, brought that up. And I have expectations of myself in the sense that I've always, I've made a commitment to myself, especially during COVID to always be curious and always know that there's unknown unknowns. You know, there's a, there's a great book I used to have called The Poetry of Donald Rumsfeld, where I took his speeches and I quoted him and made it into like haikus and limericks. And so he had a speech where he talked about known knowns. You can Google it, listeners, you can Google this. They're known knowns, they're known unknowns, and they're unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. And uh, so always be wary of the fact that there are unknown unknowns in your life, in your perspective. and um maybe people have expectations of me in various facets of my life personal and professional uh i've learned that it doesn't matter because as long as you're not hurting them or harming them mm -hmm. and they should inform you if you are because sometimes i have accidentally done that um you should have your own expectations of what you want to do mm -hmm. you know if, if i want to take a nap i'm going to take a goddamn nap 
So <laughs> I don't need to constantly be stressed about something. So uh, it's interesting that you brought that up. And, and I hope to impart on audiences that people may have expectations of you, but don't feel stressed by that. Hmm. And as much as I would love to talk about, you know, your, your journey and your like amazing, amazing work, I wanted to kind of like shift towards, um, you know, the phase where we had spoken earlier where you had mentioned, um, you know, some of the, you know, painful situations that you had been. Right. So if and you can share those, um, you know, those moments that had occurred in your life. So I think uh, one of the first main painful situations I experienced as a child was losing my mother. Um, but my mother's parents are very much still alive. And uh, I talk to them regularly about losing her and, and the effect it had. Um, but in the process, I gained a very wonderful stepmother who is almost as funny as my dad. <laughs> and, and thanks to my stepmother, I have a little brother who is such a great guy. Uh, I was about to say kid, but he's now in his 20s. So I need to remember that he's an adult now. Um, and so, yes, we lost this person and she was a social worker and she did a lot of good in this world. Uh, she also had her fair share of, you know, being human. Uh, in retrospect, um, she, she was not just, uh, I don't want to glorify her necessarily. Uh, but uh, I think that made me, there was a lot of learnings from it. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it was meant to happen, but I've become quite an independent person in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was painful, but I've done a lot of healing. I've been very fortunate to have a great community of people and to have done a lot of healing work uh, since then. Um, another incident, there have probably been several incidences in my life, as is the case with almost every human on this planet. Uh, another, I would call it a learning uh, because it was painful at the time, but I've, I've learned a lot in the process. I was in a relationship in my 20s um, where, well, let me begin the story from the beginning. And the intent of telling the story is to make sure people feel a little less lonely in life. Mm -hmm. uh, I was actually just, sorry to make a little tangent, but I'll get back to the story. I was reading this great article a classmate of mine in Japan wrote last night uh, about her fertility struggles. Uh, she founded a, a fashion line called MM La Fleur, but uh, she was very, very candid about what she went through to eventually have triplets in the middle of COVID. Uh, so getting back to the story, something she said, and I, I want to re-emphasize uh, is that I'm telling the story in hopes of making sure that people feel less alienated about their situation if they're in a situation. Mm -hmm. So I was at the Toronto Film Festival and I met an actress, an Indian actress who introduced me to a cameraman in India. And uh, I went back to work and I met this guy. He wasn't the most handsome man in the world, <laughs> but uh, I was very taken by his camera aesthetics and his artistry. I was very drawn in. And I didn't have many friends in Bombay at the time. I just moved there. So mm -hmm. 
at some point I was basically essentially living at his house and I thought to myself, eh, why, why pay double rent? We may as well move in. So we moved in, we moved in pretty fast mm -hmm. and we, we did a lot of great stuff. You know, we watched a lot of films together. We did a lot of creative projects together. I was friends with, I'm still friends with his friends. And, um, and then the start the fights started happening. And at first I thought they were natural, natural fights about various little things here and there. Mm. They were verbal. Then it became one push. And then eventually became like a slap one time. But I chose to ignore it. And then one thing led to another and eventually the violence got more and more intense. Mm. Now keep in mind, abusers are usually people who have been abused. Mm. And in his case, he was abused as a child by one of his teachers. He was sexually abused by his teacher. So in my mind, I knew this was not coming from a bad place necessarily. It came from a cyclical sense of violence in his life. Mm. And I kept excusing it in my head. And one day it got really, really bad. Uh, and there was an incident and I called up my aunt who I'm very close to and another college friend who were both abroad. I was in India and I said, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And they gave me the best advice. They said, just pack up your stuff, move to a different apartment. You know, he had, got, he had to go for a gig out of town. So I quickly did it. I didn't tell him where I lived. We had to still stay in touch because we had a company together. Uh, so it was hard to finally pull all our assets and everything mm -hmm. apart, but um, we managed to. And then eventually I moved to the States. I would say I've now, thanks to the great group of friends I've made all around the world, as I mentioned, and, and even here in LA now, I've emotionally forgiven myself for the shame of lying to others, you know, at the time. I, I normally, if I fart, I tell everyone in the room, I'm, I'm that too transparent, but that was what a lie I held on to for a long time. And I felt shame for lying to people about it uh, and for pretending that things were good. Mm. I think that was the main pain that I, I mean, yeah, sure. Okay. I, I physically was hurt, but that was the main pain point that I had to address. And I've done a lot of work on that and I feel almost completely healed um, from the whole experience. So for all our listeners who've gone through abuse and trauma of this kind, you're not alone. Find support. And I was very, very fortunate to find it. So that's, that's what I'd like to impart to our audiences today. And, and I've forgiven him and I've, I've, I've had very few fallouts in my life, but I've been blessed to have friends from childhood onwards, as I said, and the pandemic has been good because I've taken the time not just to forgive him, but to forgive a lot of people who caused pain, not a lot of, there've been very few people who've caused pain in my life, fortunately, but I've done a lot of work to forgive them. Uh, and that's been a very, very beautiful experience during this time. Totally, I mean, that, that story was absolutely very inspiration. And, you know, I feel like it's, very hard to forgive um you know situations or even people and the fact that you took your time you know you were like it's you know let me just be a positive person and just you know forgive um the past and move on and try to 
you know, get over it, even though I know that it must have been extremely hard and it still is probably for you. But just the thought of like forgiving and trying to move on and making an effort into, you know, having a better life for yourself is just very, very um, inspiring and, you know, just very important for everybody. So thank you so much for sharing that story. Of course, of course. Yeah, I've now become it's much easier to talk about it publicly. Absolutely. I bet. I mean, you know, a lot of times we tend to hide things from ourselves, too. We try to pretend that, you know, everything is okay when when it's not or when we, you know, just lie to ourselves and, and keep it a secret. But it's just great how you said that it's, um, you know, you were just blessed with so many people and your friends who who were there to support you and help you. You know, sometimes you feel like you've got nobody around you, but that's not the truth. You do have someone. It's just, you know, a matter of like, reaching out your hand and asking for help. And what are your future projects? I know you, you know, you're a producer now, you've been working on like so many things and I would love to know what is next for 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I produced a, like yeah, two years ago, three years ago, no, two years ago, I produced a horror short and I produced a few music videos several years ago. Um, and I've been more on the infrastructure side of supporting directors and filmmakers, both in India and in the US. Uh, but now my future plan, so my, one of my other loves in life is definitely music, much like you. And um, I was a piano player growing up. Um, I call myself an amateur harmonica player, which means I just bust out my harmonica for harmonica emergencies, such as birthdays or you know, party tricks like playing Piano Man by Billy Joel there's a piano around. Um, So I love music. I grew up on a lot of um, music videos as a child. And so I even super cheesy ones (laughs) from the 80s or great ones like Peter Gabriel. Actually, my the first words I ever said as a child were based off the end of Big Time, uh, the uh, Peter Gabriel's music video where he's the monster says hi there. Um, So in the future, yes, I'm actually supporting one of my directors on a horror feature film mm-hmm. uh, that will be set in India. I have a TV show I'm developing and actually writing for the first time. The third thing, I'm going to call it a third vertical, is uh, making music videos and music-related content. So um, I'm now very closely associated with a music company that's developing a great technology for Sony called 360RA. Um, And uh, it'll really revolutionize and democratize the way that we can make very, very creative soundscapes. Hmm. Um, And this allows, this, this company will allow me to interact, like much like in my early 20s when I met all the filmmakers I admired growing up, now in my late 30s, I get to meet all the rock stars I worship growing up um, and work with them on developing this technology and so um, and conveying it and message, you know, teaching people how to use it. So that's my future. I also um, have dedicated a lot of time now of late to help nonprofits to strategize and uh, to create uh, both in media and outside of media uh work um i feel like it's it's really sharpening a tool in my head um thanks to a class i've been doing recently on facilitation 
And um, I think that's going to, even though it doesn't necessarily pay, and I wouldn't necessarily say that it's very, I can box it into career development. Uh, it's something that really fuels it. So that's, that's what I have in my future right now. Wow. Of future project. That is awesome. Like it sounds so exciting and I'm so happy for you. I cannot wait for all those future projects. Um, and it's just great to, to hear that. I mean, you, you've you been doing like so many things at the same time, you know, I sometimes wonder like, how are you able to manage all the things like, you know, at the same time, but it's just, it's just, it's just amazing to see that and, and truly very You know important. how I do, uh, because I used to be quite the procrastinator. I always have been, mm. uh, I've been known for it. <laughs> and, um, what I mean, once again, lockdown has been so great for me. I know it's very selfish to say, given that the world is suffering right now, but it really gave me time to pause, self-reflect uh, and heal myself and work towards becoming a healer. That's actually one of my great aspirations in life. But um, I think that um, procrastinate, I've also learned this from a class I've been taking recently. Procrastination occurs for emotional reasons. Um, and so when you get down to the emotions and you realize it's my choice to live in LA, to pursue this career, to do all these projects, and there's a reason why, and you get down to the deep, meaningful reason why you're pursuing these projects, it helps fuel your day and your month and your year. And, um, so for the first time in my life, I'm able to wake up in the morning and have a structured day, you know? much to the amusement of my parents who have known me as like the most like <laughs> free spirited, <laughs> do whatever I want type of person. And uh, it's been really great to, to start doing that now. I'm really enjoying it. I'm actually enjoying not being a procrastinator, which is awesome. <laughs> oh, I bet, I bet, cause I'm, I'm the same, but it's just really cool when you have things, um, you know, organized and, and you know what's next. Um, but at the same time, you can be as free spirit as you are. You can be, you know, you can have fun. You can be an extrovert. Um, but yeah, having like a little discipline in life always uh, helps you. Yeah, I wouldn't call it discipline. Um, I would call it a mission, like remembering mm -hmm. your mission. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in discipline. I'm like, eh, like if I, if my body is telling me stop, relax, do that, do it. Don't be hard on yourself. And don't feel like you need to, you have to do something or you need to, or you should do something. But just remember why, why are you doing your, the thing you're doing? And that'll motivate you. Mm. Or at least it's been motivating me. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, here's the fun part. We're gonna be playing a little game. Um, it's a little rapid fire, so all you have to do is answer as fast as you can. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Let's get uh, real. All right, here we go. One thing mm. we've always wanted to do but haven't done. Direct. Really? <laughs> okay. Well, maybe in the future we'll see that. I'm working towards it now, yeah. <laughs> All right, on what occasion do you lie? Ooh, good question. Um, I'm trying to think now or in the past. Um, uh, 
I lie when I'm in a public space and I'm having indigestion. Okay. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yep. I hold, yeah, and um, especially with new people. I used to, as I told you, be so transparent. If I farted, I would tell everyone in the room. I've now learned to be more aware of my audience and who I'm talking to mm. because they may not be comfortable with that level of transparency with me. Mm. Um, and I've learned that at first I was like, they have to just deal with my personality. This is who I have. Like, you know, but now I've learned to work with different personalities and learn that sometimes they're not comfortable with me talking about the fact that I'm about to fart. So, um, so I, I gave that specific incident, uh, ins example of indigestion and lying about that. But I would, I would say instead of lying, um, holding, listening holding back and being more perceptive of my audience to make sure that i'm not making them uncomfortable with a piece of information mm. that's when i lie i and i i wouldn't even use the term lie i would hold off yeah that's not lying that's just like yeah <laughs> so now i have to think of an incident where i lie shit man um sometimes i lie about how i'm feeling in a certain uh day if i'm not feeling energetic or whatnot uh and i it's sort of a self-lie to myself mm. um to be like yeah no i'm I, i'm gonna lie about the fact that i'm not feeling great or i'm like my period is kicking my ass today mm. <laughs> all right um which talent would you most like to have i'd like to learn to play the guitar as well as eddie Vedder. Not Eddie Vedder, sorry. Eddie Van Halen. Well, Eddie Vedder too. Eddie Van Halen. I've been listening to a lot of Howard Stern of late and, you know, Eddie Van Halen just passed away. Mm. And uh, playing the guitar, maybe even like an Eric Clapton or like a, a different guitarist who I worship, Jimi Hendrix, etc., etc. I'd love to learn how to play like them. And I think I have always thought, oh, I'm too old. I'm too old to learn to play the guitar. But now of late, I've realized I'm not too old to learn anything. No, absolutely. I agree with that. You're never too old to learn anything. I mean, there's so many things that we have yet to learn. So, you know, you got to start. <laughs> okay. Um, what is one of your weirdest habits? I have so many. Um, I'm trying to think of the one that's the weirdest. Uh, I'm, I'm a very weird person. Uh, as a child, one of my weird habits was eating cereal with orange juice. Mm. And my older brother would be so annoyed with me. He's like, he would literally, we would get into physical fights because he's like, why are you eating cereal with orange juice? And I was like, that's who I am. And I'm going to be like, that That was my personality growing up. Um, so that one sticks out as a weird one. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones, but I have many. I'll have to list them down and email them to you after. <laughs> I'd love to know them all. <laughs> all right. Um, tell us one thing people don't know about you. I pretend I speak Japanese, but I'm actually faking it. 
what I do is, um, oh, that's another lie, actually. Maybe put it in the lie category. So my Japanese is decent enough for conversational, like, hi, how are you? You know, meet someone at a bar, meet a restaurant owner in LA sort of stuff. But I never studied it. <clears throat> I never studied kanji or, or anything like that. So when I want to express myself in Japanese or actually French for that matter, I take the word in English and I add an accent. Oh. So uh, I add, uh, when I say milk, I am like miruku. Or um, when uh, I, in French, like uh, is, is uh, le plant, uh, that, that, like I'm trying to pretend as though I speak the language. So. The thing people don't know about me is they think that I'm multilingual and um, can speak a million languages. And quite frankly, I can't, my, even my Hindi is not brilliant. And so um, that's the thing that people don't know about me. I'm, I'm, I'm improvising language-wise as I go along. Well, that's great. It's always good to learn new language. I mean, I try, but I fail. <laughs> Well, uh, just do what I do, learn bits of language and just go along with it. <laughs> totally. I mean, the thing is just to make other people like, you know, believe that you know how to speak in a different language. <laughs> yeah. All right. One last question. Um, one embarrassing moment from your life. Ha, so many. Um, oh, I have a great one. Um, I don't know why this was the first one that came to mind. So when I first joined working with Tom, who I was talking about earlier, my mm -hmm. guy who I worshipped as a child, and now I finally got my first job with him. So I was editing in that basement that I described earlier, and I had to take a dump. <laughs> so I went to the loo and I took a dump. And the toilet clogged. Oh. And it was a big dump. It was a <laughs> lot of shit. So Tom and another cameraman colleague of mine came back to, to the office and I was, I, I, I don't embarrass easily, but that was a moment where I was like, my new boss and I have clogged a toilet and there's shit everywhere. And he had this proper suit, you know, he had just gone out for a shoot. And I remember him rolling his sleeves up. I have to remind him of this story today. It was, he's rolling his sleeves up and he's got the plunger. And he's like, oh, Maida, oh. And the other cameraman is like laughing so hard. Like he's like falling down with laughter. I am like, my face is red. Mm. Like, oh my God. And um, he unclogged the toilet. And I remember being so careful. I never took a dump at work ever again after that, at that job. I'm sure I have since at other places, but that, was a that was one of the few cringeworthy moments in my life. Wow. Yeah. Well, you to me, I'm sure I have many instances every day that are cringeworthy to other people, but that was one that was like, ah, even for me, those standards. <laughs> wow, that that must have been extremely embarrassing. Oh my gosh. Wow. That you know, I thought I was the only one who embarrassed myself, but I'm glad to know that I have someone. <laughs> That's why I'm telling you the power of community, man. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that story. I mean, it, it really, I mean, you need guts to say that, but I, yeah, I had, I had fun, <laughs> you know, 
listening to that story. Um, but thank you so much once again for being on the show. I had so much fun talking to you. You know, really got to Same. know you. And you're so yeah. transparent. Like, I, you know, it's just really hard to find people like yourself um you know who are always so humorous and and so i i love your personality and i love knowing about your amazing career and i'm so excited for your future projects and i am definitely gonna sit with you and know all your embarrassing stories because that was really funny <laughs> <laughs> happy to share with you and the world <laughs> and I would love to meet your dad as well. Like, I need to know, like, how humorous he is. I mean, I'm sure you get that from your dad. So you must be absolutely hilarious. <laughs> yeah, poor man is working very hard right now. So <laughs> we'll try and catch him one of these days. Absolutely. Well, thank you once again for being on the show.